Good morning, or blessings to you, whatever time of day it is when you are able to listen to this. I'm glad that we can connect over God's word, even if it is not in person. But still, I'm imagining your faces that are usually in front of me as I teach. Before we jump into our text of 1 Peter chapter 4, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your throne of grace this morning, seeking wisdom and counsel. We know that every good gift comes from you, and you are a good provider. Your love is perfect, and you are faithful in all of your ways. Thank you for the gift of your word. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. We ask for fresh insight and illumination. We pray for our hearts that they would be tender to your guidance. Set Jesus before us in a way that our hearts are united to him in ever-increasing intimacy. We offer you this time, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read through the whole chapter of 1 Peter chapter 4, which is our text for this week. Again, 1 Peter chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it is strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. 
However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it is begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is the word of the Lord. As Peter continues his message to the believers in Asia Minor, he again sets Jesus before them so that they would look to Christ in the midst of their suffering. First, Peter calls them to arm themselves with the same attitude of Jesus. Peter recognizes that as he leads them through some challenging topics and the way that this church should respond, that a proper attitude is the most valuable asset they can have. Peter doesn't elaborate here on what Christ's attitude was in suffering, but he and other writers of scripture have done so in other passages. We know that as Jesus suffered, he had an attitude of humility, obedience to God, and he looked to the needs of others. Jesus also did not return evil for evil or retaliate. Instead, he persevered and he kept his eyes on the goal of his suffering. When we suffer for our relationship with Jesus, this same attitude will serve us well. The contrast to this obedient attitude of Jesus is a life of sin. Peter reminds his hearers that they are done with their lives of sin. Pursuing sin that caused their bodies to suffer is in the past. They no longer live their lives for evil human desires, but for the will of God. Before they came to Christ, there was plenty of sin in their lives. Drunken parties, no restrictions on their sexual appetites, and every other form of idolatry that permeated their culture was their habit. Now that they have turned to Christ and away from their past lives of sin, those that don't share this transformation won't understand their new lifestyle. And so they verbally abuse the Christians for their desire to walk in purity and holiness. Such abuse is painful for any new believer, especially one that lived in an honor and shame culture. No longer were they esteemed or cared for by their friends, but instead maligned, mistreated, and misunderstood. It's easy to imagine a college student who once indulged in the party lifestyle and then comes to faith in Christ. Then, in trying to connect with their friends that they once partied with, instead of receiving openness to the gospel, they instead receive ridicule and abuse. To endure this verbal persecution, Peter encourages the transformed believer to remember all people will one day stand before God and they will be judged for their actions. This verbal attack on the believer's life is not the last word. God has the final word when it comes to evaluating each person's life. In the midst of this paragraph, we find this puzzling verse about the gospel being preached to those who are now dead. The majority of Protestant commentators have understood this verse to mean the gospel was preached to those who were once alive and who are now dead. 
as there is no other scriptural evidence for a chance to repent after death. Regardless if a person is dead or alive now, all will have to answer to God. In verse 7, Peter gives another reason for adopting Christ's attitude in suffering and obedient holy living. The end is near. Without the right attitude and lifestyle, your prayers won't be on target if you are praying at all. This is the second of three times in this letter that Peter admonishes this group of believers to be alert. This echoes Jesus' counsel in Luke 21 as he spoke about the end that was coming. Jesus says, Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Watch and pray are Jesus' instructions for challenging days in the face of opposition and persecution. Jesus and Peter counsel the church that all these pressures will grow as Christ's return hastens. When life is challenging, people, especially unbelievers, will turn to drunkenness and sexual sin to drown out the grief and the pain. But believers in Jesus have a different source of comfort. We have the Lord's presence. Those who follow Christ can have a different posture during challenging times. Prayer and love. Many commentators label this next section, that are verses 7 through 11, as living for the will of God in the church. In other portions of scripture, it is the Apostle Paul who teaches about the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit imparts. Here we find Peter's brief teaching on the topic. Love one another deeply. This is good advice in any season, but especially for the body of Christ in challenging times. Just as Paul has love as the basis for spiritual gifts, this is Peter's foundation as well. As we exercise our spiritual gifts, Peter again focuses our attention on Christ. It is Christ's body we are serving, with his strength and power for his glory alone. Instead of a longer list of spiritual gifts that Paul offers, Peter seems to offer categories, hospitality, speaking, and serving. If we were to look at Paul's list of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapters 13 through 14, we would notice that much of his longer list would fit into these categories. However God has equipped us to serve the church, we are called to do it in love and independence on God. This brings glory and praise to Jesus. After his focus on how to love deeply in the church, Peter again turns his attention to instructing the believers on how to do God's will when suffering comes their way. The foundation of Peter's counsel builds on his exhortation that we started with, arm yourselves with the same attitude Christ had. The first dimension of walking through suffering like Christ that Peter highlights is not to be surprised when it happens. This is great advice especially for believers in our culture. 
I know I'm always surprised when suffering or trial comes my way. We can easily have the wrong expectation that life will be one Disney vacation after another. I remember vividly one New Year's Eve, maybe three or four years ago, when my husband Sean and I were watching the TV coverage of the ball dropping at Times Square in New York City. Once the New Year had descended on the crowd, there was a reporter who went around asking some of those celebrating what they looked forward to or anticipated in the new year. One young woman who was interviewed enthusiastically replied, all happiness and no sadness. Sean and I turned towards each other and said, good luck with that. When we heard her say it like that, all happiness and no sadness, we knew that that was not a realistic expectation about what the new year would bring. But still, we can be caught off guard when trials do come. If the reporter had interviewed Peter on New Year's Day, the year first Peter was written, I think he might have said something like this. I follow Christ. He led a life of suffering for righteousness sake. So I will suffer too as I live for Christ. But even so, I know I will have joy and strength through the Holy Spirit. Peter and the church he counseled expected to suffer for their allegiance to the name of Jesus and for their activity under Christ's leadership. Instead of seeking to avoid such a trial or to be shocked when it happened, Peter showed them how it would deepen their relationship with Christ. When they suffered shame or reproach for being a Christian, they could rejoice knowing that they had fellowship with Jesus in his suffering. He suffered for them and so now they suffer for him. If you want to better understand the lives of Christians who suffer persecution daily for the name of Jesus, I can't recommend to you enough the book The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. In this book, Nick moves from deep wounding for the suffering he experienced for Christ's sake to interviewing the persecuted church around the world to see how they cope and flourish in such challenging circumstances of persecution. What he discovers is truly remarkable to our Western experience. At one point in the book, he is interviewing an elderly man in an Eastern European country who had endured much for the name of Jesus and who yet had a strong faith and a deep sense of God's presence and provision. He had been delivered in so many ways, and God had provided for him in ways that are truly remarkable to us. And Nick was surprised that this man hadn't spread these amazing stories, or that his family hadn't heard all of them yet. The man responded by asking Nick if every day when the sun came up, if he gathered his family expectantly to watch the sunrise and say, look, look, there it is. Of course not. Nick replied. And so that is how this elderly persecuted Christian saw his life. It was to be expected that a Christian would suffer for the name of Jesus and also totally expected that the spirit of glory would rest on the believer as they endured. The church in that time and place expected such trials just as they expected the rising sun. Such a posture is so instructive for us. As a culture, 
and even as Christians in this culture, we seek to avoid suffering and trials. And if they come our way, we often blame God and become disheartened about our faith in Christ. Yet believers in so many times and places have shown us that suffering because of our faith, as painful as it is, is a conduit to deeper fellowship with Jesus. It doesn't have to turn us away from Jesus, but deeper into his life. There are so many other important applications that this chapter of 1 Peter has for our lives. Peter underscored the kind of attitude that would serve the church as well, that of Christ. And so having the same attitude of Christ will serve us well. As Jesus walked his earthly life, what did he expect? He sought a deep relationship with his heavenly father and to do only what he saw the father doing. And he knew that following his father's will would bring grief, persecution, and ultimately suffering and agonizing death on the cross. Yet he endured these things with joy, knowing that his earthly life was not the end of the story. Such obedience would come with great reward, the salvation of our souls and an everlasting kingdom that would never perish. Jesus kept his gaze, not only the suffering on the times of suffering that he did, but on the bigger plan of God. His suffering and his pain weren't forever. They accomplished God's perfect plan, but he knew that the glory of resurrection life was still to come. And when that day comes, for us, our earthly trials will seem brief and fleeting. Surely, if we are united now with Christ in a death like his, we will also be united with him in his resurrection. This leads us to another helpful application for our day and place. Peter encouraged the believers with the news that the end is near. Many believers in our culture do not hear that as helpful truth that helps them to persevere, but rather either as an enigma that they don't understand or maybe even a source of embarrassment. Because some Christian leaders have overzealously sought to set times and dates for Christ's return, and that did not actually happen, we have given up on the good news of Jesus' return as a source of hope. We have instead put our hopes and fears elsewhere. Since the industrial age began, most North Americans have put their hope in progress and in medical advancement. We enjoy the conveniences of technological advances. Of course, I appreciate my microwave, my smartphone, and my laundry machine. And then we see the remarkable progress of medical science. So many advancements have been made. And with such prog progress, surely we can save the world with our own ingenuity. Or if we are Christians, we ask for God's help to save the world with these advances. Yet as North American Christians, it can be hard for us to see that the world is not getting better. There is still great poverty and oppression. And as great as technology is, it does not solve the problem of sin. As North American Christians, in addition to looking at progress to save us, we can also be tempted by our cultural narrative of doom. Perhaps plants will seek to recalibrate our world by finding a way to cure the planet of humans. 
Perhaps instead of saving us, our technology will conquer us as armies of robots save humans from themselves. Such storylines make for amusing movies, but they are also the cultural end time narrative. Our culture certainly does not prepare for a final judgment where Jesus will call all to account because of how they have lived their lives. Instead of a reverent fear of God, we fear the end will come some other way. Somehow, these other ends sound more plausible than the glorious return of the Lord Jesus, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. Much of the Western church has lost its joy and expectation in Jesus' return to judge the living and the dead and to make all things new under his glorious and perfect reign. Yet the church around the world that expects to share in Christ's suffering, just as it expects the rising sun, has a much more profound joy, interest, and anticipation in Christ's glorious return. When we think of the painful trial of life, and especially life in Christ, and what kind of suffering that might bring, it is easy to see why Peter reminded these believers to keep their old way of life behind them. It is a real temptation to numb pain with the fleeting pleasure of sin. Yet Jesus has given us a far more satisfying way to walk our earthly lives. Fix our eyes on Christ, how he lived, how he died, and upon his glorious return. Be self-controlled and clear-minded so you can pray. And above all, love one another deeply. While we are not in a current trial that involves being persecuted for our faith in Christ, our present circumstances do present a real testing. And Peter's advice is sound for us as well. Don't seek solace in sin. Seek solace in Jesus. Be clear-minded and self-controlled so you can pray. Love one another deeply. Continue to do good. I'll share what this means practically for me at this moment, but if you ask, I know the Holy Spirit will show you what this looks like for you in your own circumstances. For me, seeking solace in Jesus means seeking Him first, before other news. Before I find out what the latest mandates or concerns are, I want to spend time in Jesus' presence and in His Word. I also think of priority and quantity. As I reflect on the day, did I go to Jesus first? And did I spend more time soaking in the truth of God's word and in God's presence than I did in the latest news? When I think of what brings me comfort, I also try to direct my thoughts to Jesus. My only comfort in life and in death is not Netflix or carbs, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter tells the believers that the judgment that judgment begins with the family of God. Don't think of this judgment in a punitive way, but a refining way. Just as gold is refined in fire, so God refines us. Such judgment is God's way of refining such judgment is God's refining way of removing everything that hinders love. 
not love in the way our world defines it, but instead greatest commandment love. God wants to remove in our lives anything that hinders our growth in loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And through that first love, we will learn how to love our neighbors well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for most of this semester, the world of 1 Peter's audience has seemed foreign to us. But in our current crisis, we are beginning to see glimpses of what their lives were like. We thank you, Lord, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. May our current trial bring us into deeper fellowship with you. When we feel alone, scared, or hurt, help us to seek you for comfort and solace. When we are confused, bring us your counsel. And let us bear your name with joy. Help us to serve your body well and with the strength you provide. And Lord, through the Holy Spirit, grant us what we need to love one another deeply. And in your mercy, arm us with the same attitude as Christ Jesus. May we truly put on the mind of Christ in our current circumstances. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.